0: happy history hump day to all of you queer historians out there this is a history most queer and i am your humble host julian rushbrook And we're going to continue celebrating uh, Black History Month, which is February in the United States, by continuing our discussion about James Baldwin. Again, he's one of my favorite civil rights era people to read about, engage with, and learn from, because he really straddled different worlds. He was obviously a black man, but he was also a gay man, and so he had his... His, his feet in different worlds, and so I think his perspective is an interesting one to learn from. Now, if you have not listened to last week's episode, which was the part one where we covered the early life of James Baldwin, you can pause this right here, go back and listen to that, and then come back to this one where we will pick up on his fascinating life and work. THE CONSTITUTION OF THE UNITED STATES OF AMERICA. ARTICLE 1, SECTION 9. THE MIGRATION OR IMPORTATION OF SUCH PERSONS AS ANY OF THE STATES NOW EXISTING SHALL think PROPER TO ADMIT SHALL NOT BE PROHIBITED BY THE CONGRESS PRIOR TO THE YEAR 1808, BUT A TAX OR DUTY may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person." One of the themes that is expressed by Baldwin in the documentary I Am Not Your Negro is one of regret. He describes a moment of feeling ashamed about not being in his country as other black folks were fighting for equality in education and other areas of life. This happened in Paris. The City of Light would be his home for years, and where he would find himself as a writer. Eddie S. Gloud, in his book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, tells of how it was only by leaving the United States that Baldwin was able to truly see the racial situation in his homeland. Gladwell explains that Baldwin realized that although he was distancing himself from American racism, he had to confront his identity as a black American. He also explains that black and white identity would be examined in Baldwin's essay from 1953, Stranger in the Village. Here is an excerpt Gloud included in his book. At the root of the American Negro problem is the necessity of the American white man to find a way of living with the Negro in order to live with himself. And the history of this problem can be reduced to the means used by Americans, lynch law and law, segregation, and legal acceptance, terrorization, and concession, either to come to terms with this necessity or to find a way around it. The Negro in America is a form of insanity which overtakes white men. The white man's motive was the protection of his identity. The black man was motivated by the need to establish an identity. The white and black identity seems to be something that Baldwin felt needed to change for there to be any future for this country. This theme is repeated over and over again in his works. It would be in 1948 that Baldwin would, of course, move to France, this move was extremely important and not all that surprising. Again, France was a very different place for black Americans and had been for some time. That is not to say that the European nation was guiltless in the racism department, but rather that the level of caustic hatred was significantly lower there. Why would I say that this moving to France was unsurprising. It's simply because he was following in a long line of fellow black intellectuals who found a safe harbor in the streets of Marseille, Nice, or Paris, far from the dangers of Memphis, Charlotte, Harlem, or even Selma. Since the First World War, black servicemen were mesmerized by the French people who treated them as heroes, or at the very least did not treat them with utter disdain. In France, a black man could walk down the pavement and not have to jump into the street in a display of traumatized obsequiousness whenever a white man walked towards them. For that very reason, other Harlem Renaissance artists, such as the aforementioned Richard Wright, found a second home in Europe. Perhaps it was Wright's having moved to Paris a year before that caused Baldwin to follow suit It was in France that his first novel would be published and he would then find notoriety as an author and social commentator With this accomplishment done he would find himself in literary circles that would introduce him to fellow queer American author Truman Capote and other artists one artist in particular that I would be remiss in mentioning is Lucien Happersberger. Baldwin would describe the Swiss painter as the love of his life. They met in 1949 and were together for a few years until they split for a time, when Happersberger briefly married an actress. When that marriage ended, the author and painter resumed their relationship which would last until Baldwin's death. This romance would inspire his second novel, Giovanni's Room, which was published in 1956. It was a groundbreaking story of homosexual attraction and romance, and the perils that go with all of that in a society that was still quite hostile to queer people. It would be a huge success going into a second printing, In just six weeks time. The novel is following the perspective of a young American man, David, a white American man on top of that, who is rather uncomfortable with his own queerness. He meets a bartender, Giovanni, who is from Italy, and the two begin a rather rocky romance. In the end, the couple end up broken up and with one of them in jail for murder. I'll be going deeper into this novel in an upcoming episode, so keep your ears open for that one. So I don't want to give too much away. While James Baldwin was having success in his career, his homeland was undergoing tremendous turmoil. While Hollywood and TV land were producing a shiny, candy-coated image of Americana, the ranch-style house with a Cadillac in the garage, a white picket fence, 2.5 children, a father with his pipe and a mother in a crinoline supporter skirt with a single strand of pearls. All white, by the way. The truth of the United States was anything but leave it to beaver. The House on Un-American Activities, headed by Senator Joseph McCarthy, was working hard to expose the queer, communist, and subversive elements of society. Despite the fact that McCarthy himself and his stooge, Roy Cohn, a former attorney for the previous president, Donald Trump, by the way, were both involved in homosexual dalliances. It was unacceptable that others do the same. It is that whole rules for the not for me thing that we still see in our current era of demonization of queer people. Brown v. Board of Education was decided by the Supreme Court in 1954 which set off a multi-decade endeavor to desegregate American public schools. One incident in particular was when the young Dorothy Counts was trying to go to a white school in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1957. Due to all of the unrest The police had, quote, barricaded the main road to the school so Dot had to get out of her father, Professor Herman Count's car, and walk, unquote, as Eddie Gloud describes in his biography of James Baldwin. The young teenage black girl was surrounded by a mob of jeering white students who spit and cursed at her as she walked, alone, with police never once stepping in to protect her. The hem of her new dress made by her mother for her first day at this new school dripped with the hateful saliva of her white classmates. Classmates that are, in many cases, as Dorothy herself is, still alive. I think it's important that this be pointed out. So often, the voices that attempt to minimize or outright deny racism in America will say that Perhaps there was racism, and that it was a peculiarity that existed in the hazy mists of the deep past, but not anymore. Racism is not some archaic concept that disappeared at the same time as the end of the Salem Witch Trials, but rather, this kind of violent hatred was expressed in the lifetimes of people who are alive and active in our society today. Donald Trump would have been around 11 years old at the time that Dot was being spat at. The current president, Joe Biden, was 15 years old. Hell, queer icon and sci-fi legend George Takei was 20 years old. All of these people are active and working in the world today. This sort of vile, riotous behavior was committed by people who still live and breathe, and they passed their sickening disease of racism on to future generations. It did not end with the passage of the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. Okay, so end of my mini rant. <laughs> Let's get back to James Baldwin. Baldwin would write of having seen the image of the young Dot Counts, her face determined as she walked past the horrid and anger-twisted faces of her peers. It affected him deeply, and so despite having found a home in France, the tribulations of his countrymen across the Atlantic could not be ignored. He would find himself back in the United States, traveling to the southern states to bear witness firsthand to the horrors he had seen in the magazine shelves on Paris's tree-lined boulevards. Other icons of the civil rights movement, such as Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., all these men would become his acquaintances, and in some cases, friends. Now, Dr. King was not so sure of Baldwin at first, seeing him as not being anything more than a celebrity, like Sidney Poitier or Nina Simone. By the way, she herself was kind of introduced to this movement by Baldwin. As the 1950s moved into the 60s, civil unrest continued. While this lavender scare of Joe McCarthy was now in the past, the horrors of the Vietnam War were now in full swing. A growing desire to end the war found common cause with black Americans who were demanding equality in the ballot box, in the schoolhouses, and in other areas of public life. Baldwin would indeed bear witness to all of this and to the deaths that would come in the 1960s. His compatriots, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, would all be dead by murder before the decade was out. Others such as the playwright Lorraine Hansberry, would succumb to cancer, leaving a void of a different sort in the movement and in the lives of those who were left behind. In 1965, he would be involved in one of his more famous debates. At Cambridge University in Britain, he would debate against the right-wing ideologue William F. Buckley. The standing ovation that he received after his speech shows just how convincing and honest he was in comparison to Buckley, who is someone that, frankly, ought to be avoided. Go back and listen to the first episode. I have a clip a clip from that. Although, if you are curious, uh, and want to maybe look at some of William F. Buckley, um he did have a series of debates with Gore Vidal. It did not go well for him, once again, as he decided to call Vidal a faggot during the debate. It appears that the level of gross behavior displayed by Buckley was something that many current conservatives have now sadly embraced. With the dawn of the 1970s and a new resurgence of conservative political power in the administrations of President Richard Nixon, it would appear as though any progress for equality was at a standstill. The Constitution of the United States of America, Article 4, Section 2. No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on the claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. With so many friends gone, Baldwin would fall into a great depression especially after Dr. King's murder in 1968. So many great men had been gunned down, and all because they wanted a better world. I didn't even mention the Kennedy brothers. This depression from the horrors in the United States and the trauma of having to go to one funeral after another for people who never even reached 40 years of age contributed to a suicide attempt in 1969. Thankfully, It was unsuccessful but there was a decidedly more downtrodden tone to his voice baldwin would move to turkey now living in istanbul and would write more including his novel if beale street could talk now that novel was recently within the past few years made into a film and it was absolutely beautiful i recommend going and checking it out the use of color alone is breathtaking He would begin teaching in the 1970s as well as being involved with film and television productions of his work, or about him specifically. He would continue to comment on society, being disgusted with the changes happening in the United States in the Nixon and Reagan administrations. After all of the years of hard work and struggle to have such regressive individuals in political power. Was a slap in the face for a man who had seen so many friends die in the fight for acceptance and equality. It would be back in his second home of France that he would, in 1987, be diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He had been suffering from weakness and a constant sore throat for some time prior to this diagnosis. While surgical procedures and treatments were performed, it was sadly too late, and the condition ended up taking his life on the 1st of December. His body would be laid to rest in New York after funeral services in St. Paul de Vence, France, and in Harlem in the United States. Fellow writers Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison would eulogize the man who had spent his life documenting that which he witnessed struggles of black people to be seen as human beings. It is troubling that his words are so sharp and current in our situation in the 21st century, now over three decades after his death. With racist comments or thinly veiled threats made by members of Congress on a daily basis to people of color, often their fellow colleagues, It's clear that after the height of the Black Lives Matter protests and other calls for change, that the road toward equality is still far in the distance. Perhaps the man himself can best speak about this matter.
1: by a high crime area almost at once because what are you going to do with all these children really whole families condemned forever to nothing in the richest city in the world my best friend a black boy jumped off George Washington bridge when he was 24 and I was 22 and I was sure that I was going to be next just from despair or? from despair rage, you know, you, because you can get to a place where, you know, where you, you, you're in battle so often that you, that's all you, that's all you can do, you know, you've been beaten so hard, all you can do is, is uh, your brain narrows to a, a kind of red circle of rage, and you begin to hate everybody, which means you hate yourself, you know? and when that happens, it's over for you.
0: Alright, well, I think that that wraps up our tiny dive into James Baldwin's life. In some ways, I feel I have not even come close to doing him justice. He wrote six novels, a collection of short stories, and scores upon scores of essays. In the future, I'd like to look at some of these. I want to give my thanks to some wonderful resources that went into making this episode. First and foremost are the works of James Baldwin himself. Next, of course, is Eddie S. Gloud Jr.'s biography of the writer, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. I mentioned earlier the 2016 film I Am Not Your Negro, directed by Raoul Peck. Lastly, the Essay Amending a Racist Constitution by William J. Achieves. His work helped me to find and contextualize the constitutional racism that has underpinned American society since its genesis. I recommend that you guys check out some of these resources if you want to learn more about James Baldwin himself and about the past and current racial struggles in the United States. Of course, it goes without saying that I would want to thank Pixabay for fun sound effects and background music. I think they really do help to elevate your listening experience. All right. So if any of you out there has comments, wants to ask any questions or just say hello, you can do that very thing by sending an email to ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com or visiting the Instagram page at historymostqueer. I really would love to hear from all of you out there to see if I'm on the right track or if I really need to veer a little more to the left. Well, until the next History Hump Day, I'll bid you a very fond adieu. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye-bye!